Today's scripture reading is taken from the last book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Cancheria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Manny and Lola, for leading us this morning. Church, if you have not already, please open your Bibles or see there in our worship books to Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 2 will be our primary text. And I already heard a murmuring of joy. We are beginning our descent, if you will, on the book of Romans uh, after an incredible season in this uh, letter. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Um, Again, Paul is beginning to conclude this uh, lengthy letter, and he's ending his letter with a long list of personal greetings and sort of final reminders that he is going to give to the church there uh, in Rome. And so for the final month of our study, we'll conclude it at the end of November, uh, we're going to be introduced to about 25 different people, 25 different people who Paul either knows are members of the church in Rome or has previous relationship with them. And from the outside looking in, or maybe a real quick cursory overview, you might look at this and just go, why are we going to spend a month going through just a list of highs and hellos? And I think it's because as we read Paul's final words here, we'll have a lot to learn about what it means to be the church. Uh, because many of us, even in our, this relationship with the church, we may not know each other very well. We're still getting to know each other very well. Whether this is your first time coming or you've been coming for a minute, you just like know when it starts and when it ends and how to skirt in and out without like having to really sink into relationships to know or be known, right? So, and that's cool. However you are, that's awesome. But what we learn from Paul and what we learn from this final concluding movement of the letter is the nature of relationships that Paul has. He's not just throwing out a letter to people he's never met before, never visited in their home town. He's writing something to people that he loves, that he cares about. And we've been reviewing that in a lot of different ways throughout the letter, but in particular when he names people by names, by, by their name, it's instructive to us. And he begins with a woman named Phoebe. Specifically, Paul commends her to the church in Rome, and he asks them to welcome her in the Lord. Welcome her in the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what he means by that. I want to talk about what it more than being a cup of coffee or when they come to our house, they got that hot pot of tea ready. The kettle is on, right? It's more than that. Though those things are awesome and important and have incredible value. What Paul is after, what I think we, we must discover, is a spirit of uncommon acceptance that is directly informed by the truth and beauty of the gospel. By the truth and beauty of the gospel, we're going to learn a unique call that Christians have to welcome to welcome. Here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the person we welcome, we'll look at the way we welcome, and then we'll look at the reason we welcome. The person we welcome, the way we welcome, and the reason that we welcome. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, left to myself, perhaps left to ourselves, we would only welcome those who are like us and make our lives easier and more comfortable. And yet the gospel ethic that I believe that you have to communicate to us today uh, invites us to a completely different posture and way of being. And so that means we may hear some stuff today that we don't want to hear. We may hear some stuff that's hard to wrestle with, to think about, or to learn how to embody. Uh, and yet we know that when we face those kinds of things, when we follow your spirit, 
through those kinds of challenges that you make us more unified, you make us holier, you make us more like your son, you make us more joyful, you make us more loving, you make us uh, more of the people you're calling us to be uh, here in the northwest side of Chicago. And so please help us. Help me to be clear and responsible with your word and help all of us as we hear your word proclaimed uh, be eager to obey it and to worship you in our response to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the church, as with, the, with a capital C, meaning all of God's people for all of time, we're always meant to be a welcoming bunch. Uh, author Rosaria Butterfield believes the call of every Christian is what she calls is to a radically ordinary hospitality. And in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Butterfield explains that Christian community, especially in our homes, is meant to be a context that daily seeks, she says, to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. There's no better word, I think, to summarize the calling that the church has to welcome people than that one, hospitality. In the New Testament, uh, which is the language of, of the original language of Greek, hospitality is actually a compound word that means to welcome the stranger. And we've seen this word before in Romans, but it's sprinkled throughout the scriptures. In Romans chapter 12, just a couple of chapters ago, uh, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Saints are believers, and together we're meant to welcome, to be welcoming welcoming each other, welcoming those around us, welcoming those that we know and those that we're just getting to know, and welcoming those that we don't know very well at all yet. And when Paul is talking to his protege, Timothy, as he's developing him, and as he's developing these qualifications of what we know today as elders or pastors, local leadership, overseers of the local church, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So of all the things that Paul could have told Timothy is important to have in a leader in a local church, he says, make sure they welcome the stranger. Make sure that they are hospitable. Make sure they're welcoming. Apostle Peter tells members of the church who were suffering, facing all kinds of persecution as the church was scattered at the time that the Apostle Peter was writing, meaning that many were not in their homes, many were relearning how to do life together. First Peter chapter 4, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> without grumbling, as if to suggest that when we are learning to welcome each other and show hospitality, another option is to just grumble and complain and moan about how uncomfortable we are trying to welcome each other all the time, right? So we can either grumble or we can welcome each other. And he says what? Welcome each other. Show hospitality without grumbling. Christians are all supposed to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God, even in the most challenging of circumstances. We're supposed to be welcoming. In fact, I, I don't think it's too much to suggest. We are supposed to be the most welcoming, inviting, inclusive, making friends type of people on the planet. That's who we're supposed to be, right? Now, let's just be real for a second. Is that not the exact opposite of our reputation most of the time? If not individually, certainly corporately. This may be an aspiring calling, but if we're honest, I think particularly if we look at the American church here in the West, um, we're known not very much by our welcoming persona, our welcoming reputation at all, are we? Uh, comedian uh, Peter Holmes uh, opens up his new Netflix special with a profound indictment, if you will, on our collective reputation that would suggest we're anything but hospitable. 
Sarcastically, he suggests to his audience that we replace Merry Christmas or that he has already done so, that he no longer says Merry Christmas, but instead he says, may the birth of the one and only true God, Jesus Christ, bestow a blessing of grace and peace upon your households, and he says, to the belittlement of every false religion, lest you be gay. Now, the crowd laughs because they're really uncomfortable, but they also laugh because there's a truth buried in that sentiment. Instead of being known for welcome, far too often, my brothers and sisters, we are known for condemnation, exclusion, and judgment. You see, the Greek compound word hospitality is philoxenia, which is the word love and stranger put together. However, and perhaps you've heard it's um, equal but opposite, we battle in our hearts and churches is what? Xenophobia, which is actually stranger and fear put together. So we are church. We are known often by the very opposite of what we are called to be. We aren't known for love. We're known for fear. We're known as those who are afraid and those who separate as a good news. So we should not feel shame as a long time, and the Lord has been at work in his church for a long time. So we should not feel shame as if we're the only ones to not figure this out, but we should feel a kind of righteous indignation that this should no longer be the case. In Isaiah, um, rather, the Lord is correcting uh, this impulse in the strongest terms. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13 says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear, the Lord says, what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall call, uh, shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. What's Isaiah diagnosing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? That the people of God at the time are merely going with the flow of the culture, They're going with the flow of their friends and neighbors and the extended social, uh, cultural moment, if you will, and they are fearing people who are different than them. They are casting judgment on those who are different than them. They are conspiring through fear and believing lies about their friends and neighbors and family members and not submitting to the truth and beauty and holiness of God. In other words, when we're fearing someone, Isaiah is saying, again, through the words of God, he's saying when we're fearing someone, we're not fearing God. When we're fearing a group of people, we're not fearing God. When we're fearing man, we are not fearing God. And as a result, when we are afraid, we don't make strangers neighbors, and we don't make neighbors family. So how does this happen? How have those tasked with hospitality, instead of being gripped with fear for God, are actually afraid of everyone else? What's more, how can God's people be freed from such a crippling fear? So how does this happen, and how do we see this grip loosen? Well, I think a woman named Phoebe is really helpful for us to look at and to consider today. She's going to help give us a lot of clarity about what it means to truly be a welcoming church. See, that's who Paul begins with in his very personal, personal uh, commendation and subsequent greetings. Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancrea. Now, 
from this and other context clues, you know, preachers are very good at taking like one word and making an entire sermon that may or may not even be connected to anything that the original author. So you might be thinking, well, there's a lot that we're going to pull out of this particular text about this woman. But I do think there are some important context clues here for us to understand about Phoebe that teach us about what welcoming people looks like. Uh, remember, We've looked at previously, and we'll again uh, today. Phoebe is likely the person that Paul taps, that asks to carry the letter of Rome, or the Romans, to Rome. So she's the one who's actually going to take the physical parchment that Paul has written on through his scribes, and she is going to deliver it to Rome. And Paul, if you remember, is heading to Jerusalem to deliver some financial gifts to um, Christians there. And by looking at her, uh, it might seem like uh, Phoebe is simply just being introduced and moving on, but I think we learn a lot, actually, about what it means to welcome people. We'll understand the person that we're supposed to welcome. First, we learn about Phoebe's culture. Phoebe's family is not only Greek, but they likely had very deep pagan roots Phoebe's conversion before Phoebe's conversion to Christianity. How do we know this? Because she is not only from this Greek city of Cenchrea, but she also has been named after the Greek god Apollo, you see, another name for him was a Phoebus Apollo, which he was named after his maternal aunt. And so her name actually bears this deep cultural connection that her family likely had in giving her that name. We also learn about her gender. Phoebe is a woman. Obviously, I don't have to tell many of you this, but there are incredible divisions that persist today between men and women, particularly against women in the local church. This is not news. But what is noteworthy is that Paul seems to not see a need to explain why Phoebe is a good candidate to do what she is about to do. He just says, this is Phoebe. This is what she's going to do. You need to welcome her, right? See, she's not only being entrusted to deliver Romans, which is already a marvelously wonderful task. But she's also going to deliver it. When she does, she's going to be asked to read it in public. She's likely going to have to answer some questions about the author and about the content because many of these folks have never met Paul, right? And even will be expounding upon its meeting when she arrives in Rome. And it's passages like this church and others, particularly Ephesians chapter 4, that has led our church to ask questions and to rethink our understanding about women's role in the local church. It's women like Phoebe who were entrusted not simply with the physical task of delivering a letter, but historically it's clear she was doing more than that. It's relating to teaching. We also see her social status. Phoebe is wealthy, perhaps even a business owner, and likely already had responsibilities in Rome. In other words, this wasn't the only thing she was going to go do in Rome. Some even think because Paul calls her a patron there in verse 4, which is actually a legal term, that she was either going to Rome to litigate some particular lawsuit or participate in something of the kind. All of this would tell us that she's a countercultural woman in more respects than one. Not only is she wealthy, but she's involved in a ton of legal affairs in the ancient world that would have been uncommon. And again, Paul is not trying to over-explain this. He's just like, this is who she is. Finally, we learn about her service to the church. So not only have we learned her culture, not only have we learned about her gender, we've also learned about her social status, and we also learn about her service to the local church. Phoebe is not only an active member, but she's a servant, Paul says, in the local church. More particularly, she seems like a deacon in her church. See, that word servant is diakonos, which is essentially means deacon, and throughout the New Testament is instructions. This is the formal office of deacon. Okay, so Paul is telling a young church in Rome that a person, 
about a person they are about to welcome. In doing so, what we learn is about a type of person that we're supposed to welcome. You see, they are commended to welcome someone they may otherwise fear. To welcome someone they may otherwise fear. Why would we say that? Well, Phoebe, a Greek, formerly idolatrous woman, pagan worship, converted to Christianity, who is extremely wealthy and influential, and is also a humble leader in the local church in Kincrea. She has a lot of different things that a lot of people don't always put together, showing up in a different context that is different from her home. So he's telling those Romans readers, welcome this Greek person. He's telling his Male readers, welcome this woman. He's telling his poor readers, welcome this wealthy individual. He's telling one church to welcome the servant of another and to not think you're in competition with her or with them. That's the person we're supposed to welcome. They may well be asking, how could we welcome a person who's so complex, who's in process, who's different from all of us? Do you see, he's inviting them to welcome the exact type of person that they might be afraid of that there might be a lot of cultural tension and reasons why they would want to remain separated from them. Well, Paul ultimately answers our question, how could they love this stranger? He actually answers their question in the first thing that he says about Phoebe. Did you catch it? Our sister. Our sister. This is beautiful. This is why I love that at Church in the Square we say brother and sister. Maybe you've never done this in your church or spiritual community. I love that this has sort of taken hold in our church family. You're my brother. You're my sister. When I'm doing communion, my daughter comes up and I'm like, hey, sister. You know, and I'm like, I start for, started saying that. It's like, that's odd. I'm like, no, 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 no. That is the rightest thing because she is always going to be my sister. She is always going to have that relationship. When we, no matter what our earthly relationships look like, no matter how short or how long or how long we are in friendship with one another, we're always going to be family. So Paul puts at the very beginning of his introduction of Phoebe to the Romans readers the truest thing about Phoebe, which is what? It's not her money. It's not her culture. It's not her gender. It's not her role in the local church. What is it? It's her sisterhood. She's family. That's the defining identity of Phoebe, that she is a daughter of God. We're family. This begins to inform everything else that Paul is going to say. See, the person we're called to welcome is the person that we might otherwise fear, but who is actually our family. You see, strangers are made neighbors, and neighbors are made, what? Family. That's the person. So what's the way we're supposed to welcome? Well, that's what Paul explains next. Look at verse 2. He says, "...that you may welcome her in the Lord..." in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So there's not only a command to welcome Phoebe, there's further instructions about how she ought to be seen and received and loved by the community. In other words, he doesn't just say to welcome her. He says, here's what I mean by that. Here's how you welcome her. And he says there's at least three things that they must do to welcome those that they might otherwise fear, especially a fellow follower of Jesus. First, he says, welcome as worship. Notice he says, welcome her in the Lord. Well, on the surface, welcoming someone like Phoebe may just be a matter of social kindness, like anyone ought to do this and understand this. This doesn't seem like that Christian-y. This doesn't seem that biblical. But Paul's instruction are in line with the language of worship. He says, in the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, He says that whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving 
the Lord. So the way that we welcome is the way of worship. It's in the Lord. It's unto the Lord. It's for the Lord. First and foremost, we don't welcome people so that we are known as a welcoming church, right? Some of us might get anxious because I want to make sure we have a really welcoming reputation that nobody, you know, that's a good impulse. But first and foremost, that's not our first impulse, to make sure that everybody knows we're a welcoming church. Nor is it so that people would feel good. Are you comfortable? Are you good? Are you happy? Do you like us? Do you, I like you. Do you like me? Right? We're going to make sure that that happens. That's not first and foremost. Nor that we feel good. I did a good job today. I welcomed some people. I feel good. That's not first and foremost. What is first and foremost? We welcome because God told us to welcome. We welcome because this, our God, is worthy of our obedience and our compliance and our worship and everything that we do. We welcome because no matter what we're doing, we're supposed to do it for his glory, his honor, and his praise. What's more, our worship actually becomes the welcome. What's that mean? Well, theologian Marva Don explains that if believers worship with gladness and passion, Anyone not yet a part of the community certainly will be attracted to the one who is the object of their worship. Modern people, especially modern Christians, often think, and if I worship too crazy, if people know that I worship God, that will be a deterrent to faith. So I just want to be a very nice person who sort of attracts through good works and good deeds, but I don't want to come across as someone who just worships the God of the Bible like a crazy person, right? But what Don is identifying is saying there's something about someone who is drawn to something greater than themselves, something bigger than themselves, something more hopeful than anything we could turn to the left or the right. We've got to look above. She's saying something about that draws people in. She goes as far as to say in her book, Royal Waste of Time, that there is something of the image of God that is drawn to the image of God being expressed in another, when I'm drawn up, not when I'm just drawn towards. In other words, what are we saying? When we fear God rightly, when we worship Him, which is another way of saying we worship Him in the Old Testament, when we fear God, we will not fear people. We will not judge them, we will not marginalize them, we will not condemn them, we will welcome them. Secondly, what do we learn about the way we're supposed to welcome? We welcome his fellow saints. Notice Paul says, welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. Now, sainthood is not something we talk a lot about in the Protestant church, in the Protestant church tradition. Um, certainly not in a non-denominational church like our own, but if you grew up or have experience in the Orthodox or Catholic church, then you're much more conversant in this sainthood kind of language. But biblically speaking, a saint is simply someone who is holy, and holy means to be set apart. Well, in some traditions, and I think in common parlance today, we think, well, a saint is someone who's a super-Christian, someone who is ultra-religious and who really does everything that the Bible says, unlike me, who only does a couple of things, you know, maybe one out of ten, not, not too bad. Uh, but according to the Bible, anyone who is in Christ is a saint. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus is a saint. Uh, sisters and brothers, all part of the saint, the priesthood, uh, the, the, the community of God's people, who are all set apart by grace set apart by righteousness, set apart by God. Not only does Paul address those in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae, he addresses all of them in each of those letters with the language of saint. He says, to the saints in each of these cities. But he helps them to understand in Ephesians chapter 2 that they are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is a way that we are to see our collective identity as not just a part of the people of God who are alive today, but the people of God, or as Hebrews says, this great cloud of witnesses that has come before us, that we are all saints together, strangers who have been made neighbors and neighbors who have been made family. You see, we're all set apart, but not from each other, but we are set apart for each other, with each other. We're set apart from the world in holiness and for God and His good pleasure by His grace. And so we ought to welcome one another in holiness as a holy people, as saints. And Phoebe in particular, Paul is saying, is living out this call. Notice in verse 2, he gives us a picture of her reputation in the latter half of verse 2. He says, for she has been a patron for, of many and of myself as well. Whether that that word has legal ramifications, she in some ways has been using her giftedness, her ability within the local community to bless and to help. And Paul's like, me too. She's been helping me. This is a worthy woman. This is a saint. This is someone who is not only your sister, not only a saint, but she is living this thing out. She is welcoming. She is worshiping. She is a saint and living accordingly. Therefore, we should honor such people by reciprocating their honorable example you know, some in the Catholic Church are actually still trying to uh, get Dorothy Day sainthood. Dorothy was this fierce advocate for uh, the poor and the marginalized all over the country. Um, and famously, though, she said, as they were advocating in her lifetime to make her a saint, she says, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. What I love about Dorothy Day is she's very iconoclastic. She always said crazy stuff like this. And you go, what does she mean? I want to know more. But essentially what she was saying is that sainthood often felt like it was disconnected from reality. That saints were those who were viewed who were like above the fray and didn't know what was really going on in the real world. And Day, a true saint, wanted to be known as someone who embraced the broken, the sorrowful, and those who were celebrating in all of the complexities of life. In other words, she wanted to be known as someone who was welcoming the least and the last and the lost. See, seeking holiness addresses the sins that often cause us to fear other people. So being a saint is not simply about being set apart and removed from others. What it is, is is about a kind of holy life that compels you to live for the good of those around you. Thirdly, what we see in Phoebe's life and in the way we're supposed to welcome is that we're supposed to welcome as creatures Notice how Paul says, help her in whatever she may need. Now, this should strike us as odd because every other context clue tells us that Phoebe is probably pretty self-reliant. Phoebe is probably pretty self-sufficient. She's got money. She's got, um, she probably has her own entourage, by the way. This is really interesting. I read too many pages on this this week. But because there's no other people listed with Phoebe as traveling with her, in other words, Paul hasn't put it together a team for her to take this letter to Rome. She probably has her own peeps. <laughs> she probably has her own crew that rolls with her and travels with her. That tells us that not only does she have money, but she has a kind of social acumen and ability to garner her own following. And yet, the Roman Christians then are still instructed to help her in whatever she may need. That's odd. It's odd for someone who is so self sufficient to also have need, right? This doesn't make sense. Welcoming one another, though, is about meeting needs. It's about understanding our limitations, our frailties, and our basic needs of life, which everyone requires, and making sure that everyone has what they need. Now, I want to suggest something to you, church in the square. This goes both ways. 
In order for the Romans to then fulfill this particular part of the way of welcoming someone, in order for them to meet Phoebe's needs, Phoebe is going to have to share her needs. She is going to have to admit her needs. I'm looking at you, my brothers and sisters, because can I suggest to you, we're really good at meeting needs. We're also really good at acting like we don't have any. Like we're good. I can figure that out on my own. Other people need help with that, but I'm good, right? Don't you love helping people? Everybody's like, yes and amen. Don't you love being helped? Nah, that feels, I don't want to do that. But you see how that can crush the community. All of a sudden, if we have some in our community who are like, I don't receive, I only give, then the cycle of generosity actually breaks down. The cycle of what it means to be human and what it means to be us actually breaks down. It actually divides the church. Why? Because we start separating in those who ask for help and those who give help. Those are the kinds of people who always have a need and those are the kinds of people who always meet that need. And the church actually is divided when we won't simply what? Admit that we have a need. See, this is the way that Christian community works. If only, if we only meet needs, we can't welcome the way that we should. Paul actually addresses this in Corinth. So of all the problems that Corinth had, they had another problem that we have here in Chicago as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. In other words, church, some of you have abundance in certain things. Others of you don't. Some of you have an abundance in another, in material resources, or of patience, or of wisdom. Some of us don't have that. Some of you have abundance of financial resources, or connections at work, or relationships, or friendships. Some of you don't. What the church is meant to be is the place to go, I got abundance in that area. Let me share. I have other opportunities. I have other resources. I have other ways to supply other needs. And when we all share in this, we are built up into the body. We all admit our creatureliness, if you will, our need in one another. And therefore, we see the beauty of dependency in community. And when we do that, when we start sharing like that, you know, fear continues to get broken down. Because when we're divided, we, we fear the person who has much or we fear the person who has little. But when we realize you got some stuff that I need and I've got some stuff you need, we're actually one body together. And the hand and the foot, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all need each other. They're not in competition, but they're in a body. Church, can you imagine if we acted like that? I think a lot of fear would get broken down. See, when we worship, fearing God, putting Him central, making Him central, we learn to reject fear and welcome others. When we see each other like saints living with holiness, we're learning to reject fear and welcome each other. When we admit our needs and see the needs of others, we're learning to reject this fear of self-sufficiency that I've got to make it on my own. We welcome each other. See, the person we welcome is the one that we might otherwise fear. And the way we welcome reflects God and his family. So what's the reason? Well, it should be reiterated that hospitality is not simply about our behavior as Christians. It's not just what we do, but it's about what we believe. See, it's about our fundamental understanding of the gospel. It's seeing our purpose and modeling our lives in the way of the death of Christ. See, the gospel isn't just a message, my sisters and brothers. The gospel is a power that's meant to shape your life. 
The gospel is not just lines to memorize. It's an embodiment of the spirit we're meant to inhabit together. It's a framework by which we see the entire world and cosmos and shape our lives in accordance with who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. See, Paul said in the previous chapter while addressing issues of division and infighting, do you remember in chapter 15, people were wiling out. There were the weak and the strong. They were so divided. And that entire chapter is committed to unity. And while he's addressing that, he says in Romans 15, verse 7, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So if you want, if you and I want to know the primary reason we welcome others, we need to remember that we first have been welcomed. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that the American church, and we in particular, can struggle with this, and we struggle with it to the degree that we forget that we have been welcomed. If we forget that we have been welcomed, if we were the stranger made neighbor and the neighbor made family, if we forget that, we will welcome nobody. How did Christ do this? How does Christ welcome us? Through his death. See, as sinful people, we were estranged from our Heavenly Father. See, difference doesn't separate. You know this? Difference is not the thing that divides us. Diversity is not the thing that divides us. Money, sex, and power are not the things that divide us. Our sinful relationship with those things is what divides us. See, sin is the thing that separates. Let's not get this twisted. Sin never fosters intimacy. Sin never cultivates community. Sin is always a threat to a welcoming church. That means holiness, my friends, is a prerequisite to true fellowship and inclusion. If we want to understand how we live as a welcoming church, we must, the scriptures say, walk as Jesus did. We need to walk in holiness. And so graciously, through his death, Jesus not only pays the penalty for our sins, and by his blood, we're told in places like Hebrews, washes us, purifies us of a guilty conscience, that we've been welcomed through a sacrifice that actually produces holiness. Then when we look at each other, we go, whoa, you are looking more like Jesus. It looks good on you. It looks good on you. We should be encouraging each other that way. We look at the fruit of the Spirit, and we go, man, you're walking more in faithfulness and gentleness right? And self-control and love. These things, you're growing up in these things. You're becoming holy. It's often, isn't it, really inconvenient to welcome people who are different than us or who see the world a little bit differently. It's costly. It's even painful to welcome some people. And that's what we're called to do as a church. That's the, that's the exact person we're called to welcome. When we welcome the stranger, we're not just showing kindness to another image bearer, though we are doing that. We are demonstrating what we believe in, the gospel that has transformed us from death to life, from separation to unity and intimacy, from a stranger to a neighbor to family to the glory of God. See, often I think our common concepts of welcoming often come without holiness, in other words, we think that about including people in our lives is merely an act of love, but not an act of truth. But the gospel does not separate these two things. The good news is that love and truth are wed together forever in Christ. That means that we do not have hospitality without holiness. They must come together. And in Christ, church, we have both. We have the one who loves you far more than you could ever dare imagine or dream. 
but the one who loves you so much that he transforms you by renewing your mind, by making you more like himself. Do you see that double movie welcomes us in order to transform us? See, welcoming Phoebe was a matter of obedience and holiness, not just love. It was about driving out the sins of fear, of hatred, of otherness, and of idolatry. Are you with me in this church? This was a miraculous act of the Holy Spirit that Paul was inviting the Romans to participate in. In order to welcome Phoebe well, Rome would have to worship They would have to interrogate and confess their fears. They would have to admit their needs and make the gospel central. And the same is true for us. We cannot be a welcoming church without the gospel. We cannot be a welcoming church without love and truth. They were going to have to remember that they were strangers who were made neighbors and neighbors who were made family. And I think we are too. We're going to have to keep that in mind. A church, see, that knows that they have been welcomed by love and truth will be a church that welcomes by love and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we certainly do need your help. We need your help because left to ourselves, we're just going to look like ourselves according to our comfort, according to our desires, and not according to your word. So would you forgive us? Forgive us for the sins of racism, of sexism and partiality that have caused division within churches and around churches and in neighborhoods and communities, cities and countries in this world. Forgive us. Sin has separated our hearts and sin has separated your people within themselves and your people from the world you've called us to love. Forgive us. Would you also heal us because we need to be freed from this fear that cripples our hearts and causes us to cling tightly to things that you are inviting us to hold with an open hand. We thank you for our sister Phoebe, who who for 2,000 years has been a testimony to the church of the power of your gospel that makes neighbors, or rather strangers, into neighbors and neighbors into family. And so would you help us to live in light of her legacy and the light of the power of the gospel and the resurrection of your son, Jesus, so that we would be a welcoming church, not so that we're known in any such way, but so that the truth and beauty of Jesus would be put rightly on display. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.